Amen. Oh, I'm so excited. I think I just feel like sitting down now. And, <laughs> but I still got to preach. Pray for me. Right. So, after those important preliminaries, we get back into the book of Acts. We are in an extended series on the book of Acts, part 52 now. Amen. We're more than halfway. That's the sad news, but we, we're going well. And I just want to uh, remind you of you know, where we are before I jump into the, uh, the sermon today. And this is our series title, You'll Be My Witnesses. And we know that this is the, the charge that Jesus gave the early church. He said, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, going through Samaria and Judea to the ends of the earth. And we are following the spread of the gospel, starting in Jerusalem. And now we are well into to Europe. And the call of Jesus, the charge of Jesus to the early church is the same charge to you and me. Right? We also, thanks but we also are called to be witnesses, to witness for Jesus. And we're learning a ton of lessons as we go along. So I just want to start off just by... Sorry, boy. (laughs) That's my son. See the more soul people. It was just a statement, but it connected with some hearts. Amen. (laughs) Right, so just to remind you of where we are. I'm going to go through this quickly, but just to create some context, especially for those of you visiting us for the first time. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Now we're well into it. He started in Antioch, which, be, which has become his home church, and also the church that sent him off. Uh, so he, he went inland on his second missionary journey. He uh, strengthened these churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey. And then we had this amazing... Uh, Example of the Holy Spirit leading. Paul wanted to go south, but the Holy Spirit kept on pushing him north, 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 and he ended up in Troas. And then he had a, a vision. There was, remember the man from Macedonia begged Paul and his traveling companions to cross over. Uh, and Paul, as always, was in step with the Spirit. He obeyed the Holy Spirit, and they did cross over. God's plan was for Paul to evangelize and plant churches in modern-day Greece. So, you know, he stopped over at all of these cities. Uh, he had a certain pattern of doing things. He started by preaching to the Jews in the synagogues. Invariably, he was, in fact, always, he was rejected by the mainline Jewish leaders. And then he took the gospel to the Gentiles, who in general accepted the gospel much more readily. And then Paul was often chased out of town. He was opposed when the Jewish uh, leaders saw how successful Paul was and how many people were converting to this new way, Christianity. They got upset, they kicked him out of town. So he didn't spend too much time in these cities. Uh, then he ended up in Athens, and won't go into that now, but then in Corinth. And then Jarette last, we covered the first part of Acts chapter 18, the first half. I am going to summarize what he said because unfortunately we had a technical problem recording the audio. And a lot of you weren't there, so just give me a couple of minutes just to fill us all in, which is important to sort of bridge where we're going today. Okay, so in um, Corinth was a very, very immoral city, lots of idolatry. It was wild, to put it mildly. So yeah, Paul pitches up there, this good, devout Jewish Christian, and he is um, troubled by the lifestyle. He preaches to the Jews in the synagogue, and then 
to the Gentiles, and we read that there were many conversions in Corinth. Now, in spite of Corinth being probably the toughest city that Paul has ever approached, God was softening hearts and many people were added. So the church grew quite quite quickly um, in Corinth. During this time, Jesus spoke to him in a vision, telling him not to be afraid but to keep on speaking because I am with you and many in the city are mine. I am with you, many in the city of mine. He told Paul not to be afraid. Maybe Paul now was thinking, things are going a bit too well. When's the persecution coming? I mean, this guy's been on on the road and on the run, quite honestly, for about two years. Okay, he's had lots of lots of bad experiences. He might be thinking, things are going too well. When's this? When's the opposition coming? Jesus says, stay put, keep on speaking. Many more in the city of mine. Apart from all the conversions that had already happened, you see, Jesus. God knows the heart of all people. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that hearts were being softened. He saw them. And he said to Paul, don't change anything. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Don't be afraid. Paul has always listened to Jesus, right? (laughs) He stayed and the church grew even more. And he ended up up staying for a year and a half in Corinth, which for Paul was an extended period, really a long period. And the challenge that we got last year, uh, last last week from Jarette, uh, Jarette really challenged us. Do we believe that Jesus is saying the same thing to us? Jesus is saying to you and me, there are many in Port Elizabeth who are mine. There are many more people who are going to be added to the family of God through your and my witness. Do we believe that? And if we believe that, do we live that out? Because remember, biblical principle, if you don't do it, you don't really believe it. Okay. So the challenge for us was to do it. To really believe that God has amazing things planned for us. He's opening doors. We just need to open our hearts, open our lives, and open our mouth. Open our mouths, hearts, and lives. Amen. Okay. So many in Port Elizabeth still are coming. Many in Port Elizabeth belong to Jesus. Okay. And then, you know, true to form, though uh, the Jews, after a while, started to get upset with Paul, they went to the Roman proconsul, who was sort of the local leader, and they spun a yarn about Paul. They basically told a lie, twisted the truth if you want to be kind to them. They pointed out to the tribunal, which was the leadership, Roman leadership in the city, that Paul was breaking the law, meaning the Roman law. Now God is always just, you know, works in situations. He's sovereign. I believe God's spirit took charge of Gallio in some way, and Gallio basically said nonsense. If a law has been broken, it's your Jewish law. This has got nothing to do with me. So a great example of God's sovereignty again. And there was an interesting twist to the end of that story. Paul would normally be the one who'd get beaten up. The leader of the synagogue, who was the instigator, he was the guy who got beaten up. Right? The Corinthians basically took it out on the, on the Jewish leader. So nice change for Paul, right? <laughs> Paul decided or reckoned that it was time to leave Corinth and we take up the story in Acts 18, verse 18. Okay, sorry, the red squiggly arrow is Paul's, the start of Paul's third, just one back, is start of Paul's um, third missionary journey. And what I'm going to read now, a lot of it takes place while Paul is en route. Paul went to all of these churches again, they've been established. He goes there to strengthen the churches. Important message for us, a lesson from Paul for us. That after planting churches and encouraging them, we continue to strengthen them. Okay? 
so we're gonna, the reading that we're going to do today happens while Paul is en route uh, to Ephesus. Okay, let me read verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. I've called my the lesson today Courage and Humility. And we will read today, we'll, we'll learn about characters who showed immense courage and a very interesting character who showed amazing humility. Amen. Before I start, let me pray. Father God, thank you always that we can, we can come together, God, that we can unite and be one around, around worship and sharing good news, God, around fellowship and especially around your word, Father. Thank you, God, that your word uh, can be trusted. Uh, Holy Spirit, we know that you inspired the writers of the scriptures. And Father, as we dig into this passage today, I pray that you're already preparing our hearts. I pray, Father, that we will leave our convicted and uh, encouraged and inspired to have the uh, the courage of, of Priscilla and Aquila and the humility of Apollos, God. What amazing lessons there are in this. I pray that you teach us the lessons. Apart from the words that I speak, Holy Spirit, I know that you can... You can give each person here the message that they need to know. So I know that you've prepared the hearts. Please put me aside, Father. Uh, forgive my the mistakes I'll probably make, God. Work through those anyway, Father. I am a, a really an imperfect vessel, and use me to bring your your lesson, your your word rather, and 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 the Jesus that 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 word points to. Please help me to bring this to us this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul leaves Corinth. He took leave of the brothers and sisters. He set sail for Syria. Syria is a reference to Antioch, his founding church. His, you know, the church that he founded, his supporting church and, and his home church. And he took with him Priscilla and Aquila. We'll see just now that Priscilla and Aquila stop off in Ephesus while Paul continues on his, on his journey. And we read that at Sencrea, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Sencrea was a little port city just east of Corinth, right? So you hopped, if you wanted to go east towards Syria, you hopped on a boat in Sencrea. The ship typically didn't go all the way across. It went to a place like Ephesus, and then Paul hopped off at Ephesus, as you'll see, and then he hopped on a second boat ship uh, to get to Syria. So Paul has taken a vow. Remember, the Bible isn't written for us directly, okay? The Bible is written to people 2,000 years ago who understood this. Now, it would have been nice if Paul, oh, sorry, if Luke, Luke, not Paul, Luke had have written this and explained what was going on here. Because I don't know about you, but, you know, Paul taking vows, he doesn't have to obey the law anymore. What's this about taking a vow? Now, the vow that he would have taken was a Nazarite vow. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 6. And people voluntarily took this vow as a way of showing gratitude to God. They would set the time. It wasn't specified in terms of how long it should be. It might be a month, two months, three months, four months. And while they were taking this vow, they didn't shave their head and they didn't take any fruit of the vine, whether it was grape juice or wine. And it helped them to focus on being grateful to God. 
during the during this vow, the focus was on praising God, thanking God, showing gratitude for God for how he had worked. And you can imagine Paul at the end of his second missionary journey is thinking back to the two and a half years that he has been on the road, and he remembers amazing things that God has done for him. God has protected him, he's provided for him, he has led him. God has used him powerfully to proclaim the gospel. Many churches and many conversions have happened. So it's a time to be grateful. It's a time for us to be grateful too, isn't it, church? And part of the introduction this morning was really just to be grateful for how God is working. So according to this vow, after your specified time is over, you shaved your head and you took that hair, that shorn hair, bundle of hair, to the temple to sacrifice to God, together with sacrificing animals. So it became part of the normal sort of sacrificial system. And after you sacrificed your animals, you would throw the, the hair onto the fire. Let me just say, some of us probably would have a bit more hair than others, right? <laughs> if we did, but, but God wasn't worried about the amount of hair. It was just the fact that you, you did this vow and you shaved your head afterwards and sacrificed it. It was part of your sacrifice to God. Um, so he would have kept his bundle of hair with him as part of his journey to Jerusalem, planning to sacrifice with animals this hair, and that sort of concluded the vow. Um, so Paul pitches up at Ephesus with his hair shaven, and his hair still would have been very short by the time he got to, to Jerusalem. Now you may ask, as I asked, why was Paul still obeying the Old Testament law? You know, wasn't it Paul who basically said that salvation is by grace alone, and he was always correcting the Jewish leaders who try to get people, even the Jewish Christians, who try to get Gentiles to first become Jews before becoming Christians? You know, a lot of the Jewish Christians and leaders pulled the Old Testament into the New, and they made it law still to be obeyed. So what is Paul doing, actually observing a Nazarite vow, which was, it goes back thousands of years to the time of Moses. What's, what's Paul up to here? Yeah, after all, Paul did write in Galatians 5 verse 1, writing to such Christians who were trying to Judaize people before converting them. Um, he wrote, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He said, you Christians, you're still trying to follow the law. you slaves. You're acting like you are slaves, but you are actually free in Christ. Now, Paul understood that he was free in Christ. He understood that he was free from the law. There's no doubt about that. But he did have liberty. This is important. He had liberty in Christ, and he could choose to use that liberty to still follow certain Old Testament traditions and laws. See that? He had the liberty to do a Nazarite vow. We have the liberty to do things like that if it helps us to grow our faith and bring us close to God. Okay, And also helps us to become relatable to other people. And that's an important point here. Now Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And the, the fact that he'd taken part in this vow and he pitched up in Jerusalem with a shaven head and a bundle of hair in his hand would have made him more relatable to the Jews. Remember the Jews gave Paul a hard time. The Jews in Jerusalem in particular. Okay, they didn't, they weren't, not all of them were fired up about, you know, Paul taking the gospel to the Gentiles and bypassing the Old Testament law completely. 
Now to the Jews I became a Jew, Paul said. So this is also, I believe, part of why he took this vow, was certainly to be grateful to God, to give thanks to God, but also helping to be acceptable by the Jews in Jerusalem. Make sense? By the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So anyway, so Paul takes this vow. And I just want to ask us, church, how do we use our freedom in Christ? You know, if you're in Christ, you are free. You're no longer a slave to sin. You, you no longer are a slave to the Old Testament law. Paul didn't take the, the easy route. He could have thought, man, I'm on my way back to Antioch. Let me just chill a bit. Let's walk. Forget about the religious stuff. But he's, he was thinking ahead and used it as an opportunity to draw close to God and to remember the amazing ways that God was working. Now, do we use our freedom in, in Christ to avoid any sacrifice, to avoid discomfort? I don't have to share my faith, we say. That sounds so legalistic. Why, why, why should I have a quiet time every day? Why should I be disciplined with prayer? Now, I'm already saved. That's not going to save me. And church, I think in the world nowadays especially, which is so, there's so much easy believism in the world. Whenever there's a call to actually do something, to do good deeds or to have, to actually do something, that's called, no, no, that's works. I'm saved in Christ. I'm saved by grace. No, we can use our freedom in the wrong way. Baptism, a lot of people will say repentance and baptism. Baptism sounds like a work. It is a work. It's a work of God, by the way, the Bible tells us. Why can't I just, in the comfort of my living room or with a small group of people, just pray Jesus into my heart? That sounds so much like more like New Covenant teaching than Old Testament stuff. People come up with all sorts of excuses to make Jesus in our image. To create a Jesus who is not biblical. How do you use your freedom, church? Do you use your freedom to actually embrace hard work for Christ? That's a choice. When we're free, we have a choice. What do we choose? Or do we choose comfort and easy Christianity? Do we use our freedom you know, to choose the path that Jesus chose? Do we use our freedom to choose the path of the cross? Or do we choose our freedom to avoid self-denial? Do we use our freedom to say, I don't have to take out my cross daily. That sounds so religious. Amen? So let's carry on in verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, speaking about Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, so Paul arrives with his co-workers, Priscilla and Aquila. He arrives in Ephesus. The plan was always for Paul to continue on his own. He left Priscilla and Aquila there, right, to just encourage and help strengthen the church. And then Paul, as per his habit and well-established pattern by now, goes to the Jewish synagogue. And surprise, surprise, they actually want him to stay on. They're interested in what he has to say. That's happened previously, but then they tend to change their minds. But anyway, but Paul says no. I mean, that's unlike Paul, isn't it? I mean, he has an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Paul says, no, actually, um, 
Firstly, I think it was a faith, it, it was an act of faith and trust in Priscilla and Aquila. That's right. And the small group of disciples that was developing there. But also Paul desperately wanted to get to Jerusalem. It was time. It was time for him to report back on the amazing things that God had done. Uh, and Bible scholars believe, look into this stuff and figure out the timing, that Paul also wanted to be in Jerusalem in time for the Passover. Now Paul has missed two or three Passovers already. Passover was a huge thing. Still for Paul, with his Hebraic background, Passover was still a big thing. But obviously the Passover about Paul was remembering the blood of Christ, not the blood of the sacrificial lamb going back to the original (coughs) Passover. Amen. So Paul says, no thanks, I've got to hop on the next ship. It arrives tomorrow. If I miss the ship, I'm not going to get to Jerusalem in time. Make sense? And as part of the Passover festival, the, the, the sacrifices that Paul would give, that was the time he was going to burn the hair that he had shorn from his head. Okay, so after spending time there, some time there, he went off. Then it says, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. Now, if you look at the map, we don't have to show it here. I'm sure you guys got good memories. You would have noticed that Caesarea was north of Jerusalem. Whenever people went up to the church, that was Jerusalem. No doubt. Some of your translations might mention Jerusalem. The ESV just mentions the church. You know, if you look at a map, it's going down. And to go from Jerusalem to Antioch was going up, surely. That's how we would read it. But here's the thing. Whenever you went to Jerusalem, you were going up. Okay? And it wasn't just an altitude thing. Even if you were going to Jerusalem from a, a higher city, and you might have been going down, you know, downhill, you always went up to Jerusalem. That was the culture. Jerusalem was the pinnacle, you know, of the experience with God. Make sense? And then, wherever you went from Jerusalem, you went down. You couldn't get higher than Jerusalem. Okay, so that's the up and the down if you kind of a bit confused by that as I was in the beginning. So he had his heart set on Jerusalem, probably for the, the Passover. Um, yeah, the up and down, I was just thinking, no thunder, that's why people come up to Port Elizabeth, right? <laughs> I will edit that out of my sermon, I think, right? Probably, probably a wise thing to do, right? Joburg is coming down to be a bit Amen, Notando has come up. Good stuff. Okay, so Paul's in Jerusalem for a while. He then goes down. He goes back to Antioch. He's, he's founding, he's, uh, the church he founded that became such an important hub in the spread of the gospel into Asia and Europe. Guys who supported him, no doubt, he, he fed, he gave them feedback about how awesome God has worked. Everyone was super excited. Uh, Luke doesn't give us much detail now about that start of that third missionary journey, but we know that Paul went inland, as we saw, uh, strengthening the churches that he had established. But now it gets really interesting. We're going to read from verse 24. We're going to be introduced to an amazing character. I I would love to know more about Apollos. Um, He becomes a pillar in the early church. We don't know who wrote the, the letter to the Hebrews. Some people say Paul, but there's a statement there that kind of excludes Paul. Many leading Bible scholars believe that Apollos wrote the letter to Hebrews. I'm just putting it out there. That is, even in the early church, that is the esteem in which he was held. He was very capable of writing a letter 
like the letter to the, to the Hebrews. So we don't know much about um, Apollos, just what we read here in Acts, and then in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, there's a reference to Apollos. Okay? Um, there Paul needs to correct the Corinthians who were saying, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. Instead of I follow Jesus. So Apollos obviously had huge impact in Corinth. We'll read just now that, remember, Ephesus is east of Corinth. Uh, Apollos went back to Corinth and he became a very influential leader in the Corinthian church. Now, Luke introduces Apollos as follows. He's a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately of the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, this is strange, isn't it? He seems to be preaching about Jesus, but he actually knows only the baptism of John. He hasn't been baptized into Christ. So I'm going to spend a bit of time just um, you know, explaining this. But firstly, when someone came from Alexandria, that was a really important statement. It's like us saying, wow, he studied at Harvard. Whoa. No, the reputation that Harvard has, eh? Woo. Now, or Cambridge or Oxford. That's the connotation associated with he came from Alexandria. There were three main university cities in the early first century. It was Alexandria, it was Tarsus, and it was Antioch. Now, those were the three big university cities, but especially in Alexandria. That was the leading university city. The leading thinking and biblical interpretation and study of the scriptures happened in Alexandria. Alexandria was established by Alexander the Great, in 332 BC, using mainly Hebrew slaves to build the city. That was, okay, that was 400 years before what we're reading now. And the descendants of those Hebrew slaves became almost like the brain trust of Alexandria when it came to things of the scriptures. The Hebrew Bible was first translated into Greek in Alexandria. They became the experts in terms of how to read and interpret the scriptures. Campus guys heard from Jaret, right, on how to read the Bible. With respect to Jaret, Jaret knows nothing compared to what (laughs) Paulus knew and taught. None of us. This guy was the world expert. One of the world experts in scripture. He pitches up in Ephesus, standing room only in the synagogue. You can imagine Big TV outside for those who can't get in. But this, this guy's he's coming to town. You know, this is the man. This was an important event. This was a leading teacher cruising into town. And also he was a natural leader. You know, he inspired people. He attracted followers, hence Paul's correction to the Corinthians. He attracted a following, a cult of personality. I follow Apollos, some people proudly said. Apollos speaks a whole lot better than Paul anyway. He's much more eloquent, he's fired up, he's filled with the spirit. Come on, how can you listen to Paul? How can you listen to Neil when you've got other people in the church? Amen. That, that was the, the, the cult of personality. I'm pleased we don't struggle with that nowadays in our world, eh? <laughs> and I'm especially pleased in the church we don't struggle with the cult of personality. The cult of personality is alive and well. 
Many, many churches in this city are all about an individual, the preacher, the prophet, the apostle, the church leader, right? They go not to experience Jesus, but to listen to the amazing prophet speak, cult of personality. Even in our church movement, we've got to be careful, church, right? That it's not about me or about anybody else. It's not about any of you. And that if all of your brothers and sisters had to leave the church, you will still come. Because it's about Jesus. It's not about individuals. So let's be aware always of uh, the cult of personality and make sure that we don't end up having favorite teachers and favorite preachers in the church. Amen? We need to listen to the content of what is said by people up here. Right? And we do invite the church and we really mean it. If there's anything you hear that doesn't resonate, that, mm, that sounds a bit off, you come and speak to us. Yeah. I'll put out the invitation again. And guaranteed we will listen. That's right. If I don't listen, rebuke me for, for, for being prideful. Sure. Okay? Uh-huh. And if I don't listen, go and speak to the other leaders. And that, that genuinely is our attitude. We love the scriptures. We prepare yeah. carefully. You know, we take teaching seriously in this church, but we can make mistakes. Mm. Okay? Come on, we need to listen to the content, not just be swept away by the style and the passion. It's about the content. We must let our heads lead our hearts. Don't let our hearts lead our heads. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Priscilla and Aquila. Now, fortunately, Priscilla and Aquila were not the sort of people who got caught up in the cult of personality. Verse 26. Verse 25. He knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is amazing. Um, Here we have a world-leading teacher from Alexandria in town. Priscilla and Aquila go, awesome, I'm going to learn so much, it's going to be so inspiring. And as he speaks, I see through all the harp and the leadership and the speaking ability and clever articulation and the passion and the zeal. And they think, wait a bit, what he's saying there doesn't sound so lacquer. And I can imagine the alarm signals going off in their heads. Like, whoa, what is this about? I can imagine them looking to each other and saying, did he say that? Really? Priscilla and Aquila had the courage, and this is where the courage comes into my talk. They had the courage to confront one of the leading teachers in the known world. They had the courage to confront him and say, Apollos, what you said there wasn't actually the full gospel. Isn't that amazing? Sure. What great, great courage. Come on. You know, I was thinking of, of an e- equivalent. I, I used the example of Harvard. Um, and I'm going to use a, a discipline of science. Let's, let's say climate change. Let's assume that the leading, a leading professor, and in fact a leading thought leader in the world in climate change, cruises into town. Goes to NMMU, conference center, standing room only. Everyone wants to listen to him. And you are an undergraduate student. And you're at the back, and this guy starts to speak and starts to quote some research that you actually know very well. And you think, my goodness, this isn't the right interpretation. You know, he's presenting a wrong picture of climate change and everybody around me is buying into it. What should I do? Imagine having the courage as an undergraduate student going to a professor, leading professor, 40 years experience and waiting in queue, you know, in the break between proceedings and saying, professor, what you said there 
is actually incorrect. I want to humbly suggest to you that the proper interpretation of that research is A, B, and C. Would you have the courage to do that? Wow. Or do you think, I must be wrong? And imagine if your professor says, wow, Keegan. Name's Keegan, and he sees from the name tag. (laughs) Keegan? Keegan, thank you so much. I have never read that paper like that. I'm giving an incorrect view of climate change. I need to change the way I speak and how I present climate change to my audiences in future. That's the equivalent of what is happening here. Priscilla and Equilla correct Apollos. Apollos humbly, humbly accepts the correction because we read, I'm going to skip down to verse 29. This is where he goes back to Corinth. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So straight away he's getting, you know, God's grace through Jesus. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what's going on here? Before he was corrected, he was speaking about Christ, but he was probably being grounded only in the Old Testament and knowing the Old Testament. He was, he was speaking about the promised Messiah the one who would come. He would have been using Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, preparing people for the coming Christ, because he only had the baptism of John. He might have known about Jesus, that this guy was died and he resurrected, but he didn't link Jesus to the Messiah. He missed the memo somehow, right? Maybe he was stuck in Alexandria doing, Alexandria doing some teaching. So he knew of the Christ, possibly, of Jesus, but he didn't connect the dots and say, yes, the promised Messiah is Jesus. That's rather important part of the gospel, right? Yeah, yeah, that's not a small mistake. And Aquila and Priscilla bring him into their home and they teach him more fully about Jesus and the gospel. Aquila and Priscilla, what they said to Apollos would have radically challenged his worldview. It disrupted, it turned his world upside down. Get that? You can imagine. He responded with incredible humility. He repented and he changed the message and he filled out the gospel and preached the gospel from that moment onwards fully, presenting a full understanding of the gospel and of Jesus. And of course the question for us is, is there an apology you know? Is there someone who's passionate about the Bible? Who preaches even at church incredibly powerful, passionate messages? Who attracts people? And who sounds so confident that he knows the scriptures? Is there someone like that, you know, who you can go and, and are you willing to go and speak to him? But apart from that super preacher, is there a friend you know? Is there someone you, who you know, a colleague? Maybe a classmate at varsity, someone at school. Is there someone you know who has an incomplete understanding of the gospel? And do you have the courage to go and speak to them? Pointing out, full of grace, full of truth. Obviously, the Bible makes it very clear to us how we should bring the truth across to people. Amen. Not arrogantly, but the way that Jesus wants us to present him to the world. Is there someone like that? Do you have an Apollos? who you know doesn't have a full understanding of the gospel and of Jesus, and who hasn't been baptized into Christ. Maybe he's been baptized an infant. 
maybe he's been baptized or she's been baptized, not quite linking it to salvation, and I did it just because it's kind of what we do, but I was saved sometime before that. Is there someone who you need to fully explain the gospel to? Yeah. A lot of re- religious folk in town. A lot of people believe Jesus. But is there someone who you can help get a complete understanding of Jesus? And the flip side of it is, do you have the, do you have the humility of Apollos? Sure. If you hear this morning and you don't, you realize that there are gaps in your knowledge of the gospel, of the scriptures, of it means, of salvation. Do you realize that you have some gaps and are you humble enough to accept correction? Sure. Listening to the word of God. Sure. Not being impressed by the person, but letting the scriptures convict you. Yeah. And to bring about the repentance that you might need as you more fully understand the scriptures and the gospel. So let's zoom in on this amazing couple for a moment, Priscilla and Aquila. I'm just going to share a few things that we can learn from them. Firstly, do you notice that Luke mentions Priscilla first? The wife before the husband. Did he make a mistake? I mean, in that culture, it's so patriarchal. I mean, you always mention the husband first, the man first. Now, interestingly, the Western text, sort of the later translation, switched it around. <laughs> Convenient. Oops, I'm not sure what passage you have, but the original writing of Luke mentioned Priscilla first. Is he making a point? I think so. You know, Luke, if you look at the Gospel of Luke and Acts, the main theme, or one of the main themes in Luke's writing is always that salvation is for all. Luke refers to a whole lot more women disciples than any of the other Gospel writers. Paul obviously taught this. He said, in Christ there's no Jew, Gentile, man, woman, male, female, whatever. Okay, the God, we, women and men who are Christians living as disciples of Jesus are equal before Him. The roles are different, absolutely, but we are equal in Christ. And I think Luke is stressing that point. You know, in Christ there's no pecking order, there's no lording it over in Christian marriage, men. Okay, if your wife, amen, your wife is a Christian, I want to generalize, but she's probably even a more faithful, amazing Christian than you are. You guys can throw tomatoes at me. I'm speaking from experience, being married to an amazing woman. Yet we still are tempted to go the way of the world and to lord it over our wives. Yeah. Honest? Sure. Honest with yourself? Your wife is a partner in the gospel with you. That's right. Now, they also, my second point is that, yeah, I'm sort of leading into these, Priscilla and Aquila are a great example of a married couple who are equal partners in the gospel. They're on mission together. They're learning together. They're discussing strategy together. They're proclaiming the gospel together. They are discipling one another, I have no doubt. This is a God-centered marriage. Christ-centered, family-focused, and mission-minded. It applies to our church. It applies to us individually. It applies to our marriages in particular. And Olene and I have counseled many people. We've got lots of counseling ourselves over the years. (laughs) Amen. Thank you for that. We have counseled and discipled many married couples. And when Christian marriages go off track, the first bit of advice we give them is to focus on doing mission together. Be strong as individual Christians. Partner with your husband and wife. 
When you prioritize like that, you don't sweep the problems under the carpet, but believe me, you have perspective. Sure. The things that weren't imp- that were so so important, you suddenly realize, you know what? In the bigger scheme of things, that's actually not important. Yeah. If you want to have a strong marriage and make impact, be a be a partner in the gospel, be on mission with your spouse. And Priscilla and Aquila are amazing examples of that. Thirdly, you'll notice what they didn't do. They did not interrupt Apollos. Stood up at the back, false teacher, don't listen to him. They might have been tempted. The guy was so far off. They didn't storm out. What did they do? They brought Apollos into their home. A lot happens around table fellowship, doesn't it? People are much more open to the truth about the gospel when we give them a good meal. (laughs) When we invite them into our home, it's biblical, believe me. A lot happens around tables and eating in the Bible. So they brought them into their home, they welcomed them, they showed hospitality, and I can imagine them very respectfully pointing out to Apostle the error in his teaching. At stage, his tummy was nice and full and had some awesome food prepared by Priscilla. Maybe by Aquila, actually, yeah, okay. Who knows? But they had some amazing food together, and that just opened the heart of Apollos. It made it easier for him to accept the gospel. Because not only did he hear the truth, the gospel, from Priscilla and Aquila, he saw it. Speaking the gospel is important, but living the gospel is even more important. I've just messed up the quote, but amen. It's something like that, right? We live the gospel as much as we speak it. One of the early church leaders put it that way. So they saw the gospel at work. He did, sorry. Apollos saw the gospel at work. He saw the life in Christ. And it matched the teaching from the scripture. And we're not perfect church, but if we do not live the gospel... If people do not experience the good news of Jesus in us, then our words might not be effective. And I always say to people, man, if you're not living like Aquila and Priscilla, admit it. Right up front, say, you know what, I'm a sinful wretch. We all are, by the way. You know? And I'm working on some things, but I still have good news to tell you. I'm not going to wait till I'm perfect. I'm not going to wait till I have no sin at all before I speak about Jesus. So I end with this challenge and this charge. Be like Priscilla and Aquila. Be willing to teach and correct people whose knowledge of Jesus is incomplete. In our times, incomplete knowledge of Jesus often means a watered-down gospel. One focused on my comfort, my ease, my security. We still keep ourselves the center of our lives instead of giving way to Jesus and letting Jesus sit on the throne of our lives. So I encourage us to be willing to teach and correct people who do not live out the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. That's what it boils down to. Be brave. Have the courage of Priscilla and Aquila. Secondly, be like Apollos. You know, when you are helped by someone into a better understanding of the gospel and of living as a disciple, and that can come from within the church as well as from outside the church. Show the humility of Apollos. As long as it's based on the scripture, of course, and not on opinions, and the scripture is used properly, if God's word says it, that settles it. That should be our motto. And then if you are married, my third point, keep building a God-centered, sacred marriage. Imitate Priscilla and Aquila. 
Be full partners in the gospel with your spouse. Use your marriage to showcase the love between Jesus and his church, which is God's purpose for marriage. And if you have a home, use it to show hospitality to people who need Jesus. If you're not married, look for someone who can develop into an Apollos, or sorry, into an Aquila or Priscilla. I'm not trying to set an incredibly high standard, right? Not at all. These guys were, were old, older. Uh, don't set ridiculously high standards, but pray that you will meet single girls. OG, sorry. <laughs> that you will meet a young man who is a fired up disciple of Jesus that's right, that's and who right. wants to be on mission with you. Come on, come on. And if you're a man, look for a sister like that. That's right. Okay, look for a sister who will be on mission with you and who can help change the world with you. You have a 99% chance that that marriage will be fine. Come on. And that you will be happy, you will be joyful, that you will live life to the full in a way that People who are not in that sort of Christian marriage cannot enjoy. Amen. Thank you, church. Come on.